Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio. You are your community radio station broadcasting from the historic Hayburn building at 106.5 FM. And we live stream anywhere you got an internet signal. You can find us at forwardradio.org and you can go there to become a part of our community radio station. Uh, we want your voices behind these microphones. Maybe you could take part in our weekly community conversation, our, our Truth to Power happy hour here on Forward Radio, or perhaps you could do your own weekly program. You can learn how to do that at forwardradio.org. Just click on participate and chip in a few bucks while you're there to help sustain us on the air. It is coming up soon in April. will be our fourth anniversary of broadcasting to Louisville. Uh, we're really excited about it, and uh, we're actually going to be hosting a talent show, uh, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that today, too. Uh, my name is Justin Mogg. I'm one of the programmers here on Forward Radio. I do a show called Sustainability Now. Also in the virtual studio with me is Lonnie Griesbaum, host of Backtracks. Welcome, Lonnie. Oh, he cut his microphone off just at the wrong time. <laughs> I, have a, I have a cough button on here. <laughs> he was swearing. I'm, I'm high tech. No, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to be anywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we're also delighted to have with us in the virtual studio, Doug Lowry from uh, Sowers of Justice, which is a proud community partner of Forward Radio. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. And Doug is also uh, deeply involved in the Louisville Community Grocery, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. And, and we're going to talk about uh, community and cooperative economics, uh, which ties very nicely into Forward Radio's uh, you know, community radio station. We, we rely on collaboration and cooperation, just like uh, we're hoping the Louisville Community Grocery that will get started will also be doing. We're going to just uh, kick back with, I don't know if anybody brought any beverages, but uh, it is our is this our weekly happy hour here Friday after work kind of thinking about uh, the yeah <laughs> Lonnie's got his uh, coffee anyway hope it's uh, spiked with something for the weekend <laughs> but we try and just have a freewheeling conversation about uh, this this crazy week just passed and 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 things of topical interest this week um, and I know we're going to talk about Black History Month which I'm really excited about because February is an important month to uh, think about uh, the history of African-Americans. Uh, but let's start off with you, Lonnie. I know you wanted to talk about um, Biden's National Defense Authorization Act and how it relates to our our COVID response, right? Yeah, you know, I was really actually thrilled when one of the very first things uh, Biden did when he took office was to enact the National Defense Authorization Act. And yeah, what finally, that act does <laughs> Should have been done a long act, time ago, right? Yeah, well, what that act does is it enables the president to direct resources where they need to go. In other words, uh, like in World War II, within three weeks, FDR shut down all auto manufacturing in the United States and had those uh, factories producing parts for uh, Jeeps and airplanes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I was real thrilled when he enacted this, and he, he did so with the uh, express purpose of being able to supply PPE and vials and syringes and all of that sort of thing that are needed to provide delivery of the vaccine. Yeah. And that's great. But what I didn't hear him say was that he was going to use the NDAA to direct companies to 
produce more of the actual vaccine. And I, I wondered about that at the time. And I thought, well, maybe that's coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, earlier this week, I was listening to WNYC in New York City. Nice. It's a very old and established uh, public radio station. And they had a program on called On the Media. Mm -hmm. And the host, Brooke Gladstone, had a guest. Uh, his name is Dean Baker. And he's the senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And he said that the problem with the vaccines is that in the beginning, uh, Moderna and Pfizer and Merck were each given somewhere around $400 million wow. to do research and development on a vaccine and to do phase one and two trials. And then in the case of Moderna and Pfizer, uh, they were given additional money, another $400 million or so each, to uh, do the phase three testing. Mm -hmm. So then what happens after that's what's really curious. <laughs> after that happens, then they're given, Moderna and Pfizer were given monopoly patents on these vaccines. And to create a market or to ensure them a market gave them pre-orders for, I don't know, a few hundred million doses of the vaccine. So it's a pretty, you sweet know, deal. <laughs> the, the question is, okay, there's the reason why that the NDAA is not giving Biden the permission he needs to get other companies to produce the vaccine. For instance, Merck, they failed their trials, so they withdrew their vaccine. Now, important to note, they didn't lose any money on it because the government paid them hundreds of millions of dollars to try to produce it. It failed. The taxpayers paid the bill. We took the risk, and they failed. They didn't lose any money. But I'm sure Merck would be more than happy to help produce either the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine if they could get access to it, but they can't because of the monopoly that we gave them on the vaccine to Moderna and Pfizer. And so it just to say, Lonnie, that was a big shot in the arm for pharmaceutical companies. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not so much for Merck because they, they didn't, they didn't lose money, but they didn't make money either because their, their vaccine failed. But for the ones that were, that worked like, Moderna and Pfizer, yeah. It's like guaranteed. If we fail, we don't lose anything. If we're, we're successful, we're going to make hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, not just selling it here in the United States, but to other countries. So it just seems to me just such a really messed up way to handle health care. Yeah. And, and why should we be surprised? Now, this same guy... Dean Baker went on to say that on all drugs, the U.S. government pays about $45 billion a year for research and development. And most of that money is given to research hospitals. Hmm. Okay, so they, they, they produce these uh, drugs and it's done it on government money. Yeah. So then, then the pharmaceutical industry, they pay about $90 billion a year. But most of that $90 billion isn't on R&D, it's on trials. 
So we pay about a third of the money that it costs to develop most drugs. Hmm. Yet the, the pharmaceutical companies get all the profits. Hmm. And you're not saying they shouldn't get any profit, right? No, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, we do need solvent companies, mm. you know, and, and I wouldn't expect them to work for no profit any more than I'd expect um, a guy working at a, 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 you know, an auto company to work for no profit. I don't expect that. Uh, now, some people would argue with me about that, but I see reasonable profit in most things not being an issue mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but and of what's course, reasonable and of course if the profit went down to the you know workers that, that would be one thing well yeah that'd be great <laughs> and, well then the other up. thing too the other thing i think of too on this is where are all the free marketeers yeah exactly where, where's the free market in this setup mm -hmm. the government has created the market a monopoly market. I mean, when, when you mention all these big buckets of money, I feel really concerned for all those big oil companies. Um, they really need those subsidies. The big oil <laughs> companies, the big pharmaceutical companies, and even the Catholic Church with these um, PPP loans. It's amazing how huge entities yeah. get, get all this money, and yet there are all these small businesses, local businesses, and residents in communities that really have been hit hard by the epidemic are not really getting the financial support. Or, or in the music business, you know, a place like headliners music hall, Yeah, small, right. small group of owners. They're not going to get anything out of that. Save the stages act. I know they pushed it in the end. I'll bet you year down the road, you look and, and they'll say, no, we didn't get anything. Wow. That's just the way those things work. Well, the the whole story of this, uh, you know, support for vaccine R and D uh, and and the monopolies that we then give to the big pharma, really makes me reminds me a lot about the way we we deal with utilities, right? We we give monopolies to LG and E, uh, for example, uh, and used to be for the telephone companies too, right? Uh, and, and we see when when we do that the the way that it can abuse ratepayers and the environment. Uh, and it seems like a losing proposition to me. Well, my, I've had a problem with copyright and patent laws for years. Mm. I think the whole thing is such a big mess that the whole thing needs to just be scrapped and started over from scratch because really any patent or any copyright is a, micro what do you want to call it a micro <laughs> monopoly in other words if i get a monopoly for say i say i invent a new kind of a guitar okay that operates differently from uh -huh. any to, to these you know up till now and and the government gives me a monopoly i apply for and get a monopoly on on lonnie lonnie g's guitar <laughs> design i've got a monopoly on that design i'm the only one that can build that I c i'm the only one that can sell that for 50 it years doesn't matter i can put it in the closet and refuse to sell it right. to anybody right 
or I can say, I'm going to be the only one to produce it and they're going to cost $20,000. If you don't like it, you can't have one. Yeah. You know, and so all, all patents and copyrights restrict use. That's, that's the, that's the whole outcome of it. Otherwise they wouldn't work. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm all for people that, that invent things and, produce things and come up with new ideas, intellectual property kind of thing. I'm all for them being compensated fairly for what they've produced. But what I'm not in favor of is this situation where that one person forever, 78 years or however long the past has total control over who can use it and why and for what. Yeah. Well, and it's problematic in the music industry with copyrights too, right? Yeah. Because most of that, most of those royalties aren't actually making their way down to the artist, right? Well, no, that's a that's a common misconception uh, that artists. Oh, we're 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 fighting for the artists. You know what? Universal Music Group owns directly or indirectly through its subsidiary labels. 50% of the recorded music copyright copyrights on the recording. Wow. Wow. And so when the, so when the royalties do get paid out by Spotify and they how little bit Spotify pays per spin, you know, less than, you know, a fraction of a penny. Yeah. And all the artists go, yeah, that's horrible. That's horrible. Well, the thing is, if the, if the, rates were raised who's going to get that money most of the time it's not going to the artists it's going to the big publishing houses the big music conglomerates like umg and warner you know it's it's a joke and and the musicians fall for this story every time well they're fighting for their scraps right i mean they're they're in a tough spot they're subject to whatever Usually those words are modified by who holds the copyright. And what that means is who is keeping the water from flowing downstream. So they're not holding the patent. They're holding it back from other people. And it's one thing when it's some minor uh, invention like a straw, but if it's a life-saving medical device or if it's a life-saving medication, for example, with diabetics, you know, there's certain medications that diabetics have to have. and when people hold a patent or hold all the production rights to something, they can drive the cost up in a way that makes it unfair. And my sense is we all recognize that there are commons that we create. We create the resources for these commons. So when we give a big bundle of money to an oil company or a big bundle of money to a pharmaceutical company or even a university, the expectation is that the public gets the public good, the benefit of, of taking public resources. But as what often happens when there's a commons, there are people out there ready, willing, and able to not only co-opt it, but co-opt it in a way that actually defeats the the idea of the general good. Uh, but, it makes it harder for, for people, you know, for black people, for Latino people, for women, for LGBTQ people. So when you go back and look at who's most affected, you know, it's not just that they're making a lot of money. It permanently, we're using commons that permanently affect how power is used in our society. But even in cases uh, uh, that may not seem uh, huge 
or, or be in the public interest like insulin. Take a song, okay? Take a song and uh, let's say it's uh, Joe Walsh. There's a song playing on the radio in the background. Somebody's at a family party and their kid's dancing and there's a Joe Walsh song playing in the background. And it's a birthday party. And, it you know, the audio's terrible anyway, but the thing goes viral on YouTube because it's this cute kid, you know. And <laughs> next thing you know, they got a copyright strike against them because people that hold Joe Walsh's copyright said, Take it down. It's got my music in it. Well, at that point, you're starting to not just protect your money uh, on your song. You're you're starting to mess with just the little guy that's putting a, a post up for his family on Facebook. I mean, it, it's it's starting to erode the quality of life. Or, you know, it's like, no, you can't do that because a car drove by during the parade and it had a song playing, a Prince song <laughs> blaring out there. I'm serious. They've taken down videos like that. Wow. You, you've heard of copyright trolls, so people who copyright oh, yeah. stuff and then... They're like collection Their goal is not to protect the patent. Their goal is to earn money through litigation. Right. So they actually sue people, um, and that's how they make their money. The threatened... The threatened lawsuit is actually more effective than the yeah. They lawsuit. settle out of court. Yeah, they settle them out of court. They're like collection agencies. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, of course, cooperative economics is a is a different way to look at this, and we wanna we wanna spend some time today here on Truth to Power, talking about uh, cooperatives and maybe getting an update on the Louisville community grocery. Uh, and there's some exciting things happening around that for black history month, right, Doug? There are. So Louisville community grocery is a cooperative. We have a not-for-profit side that's launching the grocery, but the grocery itself is a collective. It's a cooperative. And right now, the Louisville Community Grocery has over 400 owners, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that there are 400 people who, in one way or another, have invested their resources to create a cooperative grocery store. Including Lonnie. Including Lonnie. <laughs> hey, he's a new member. I, including me, but I'm still waiting to find out when I have to work in the produce section. <laughs> so the, the exciting thing for me about cooperatives is that it really reaches back into our American history. Yeah. Uh, many of us are aware and acutely aware in Black History Month of how black people suffered outright economic assault. Not just oppression, but outright economic assault. And being able to find ways to band together to create economic opportunity and economic power just to survive is an important part of black history. So fortunately for Third Thursday Lunch, Fellowship of Reconciliation and Sowers of Justice Network have a luncheon. We had Sadiqa Reynolds last month. That was an opportunity. This month we'll have Lisa Markowitz from UofL. Oh, She's going to be talking about collective courage and some other works that really uh, line out the history of economic power. How did people survive economically through Reconstruction, uh, the KKK, mm. and all these other entities out there? And then particularly Black farmers. So that's one of Lisa Markowitz's areas of expertise. We will also have Barbara Boyd. She's the president of the Louisville Asala chapter. And when you say, what the heck is Asala? I don't know. 
Well, it's the Carter G. Woodson Asala uh, branch. And Carter G. Woodson is the founder of what started as Negro History Week, but then became Black History Month. So the Black History Month that we know and talk about is from Carter G. Woodson. Do you know so why? Talk a little bit about that. Do you know why it's celebrated in February? I've heard people kind of snidely joke that, well, it's the shortest month of the year. So, of course, that's why we get it. <laughs> um, I'm not sure why February yeah. is Black History Month. Huh. I think there might be a good reason. I don't know what that yeah. is. So we'll also have Tomas Edison, who is president of the grocery, and he's going to uh, talk just a little bit about how people can become more engaged in our committees. And Cassa Heron, who is the president of the Louisville Area Cooperative Economics Group, uh, is going to be there as well. The idea is that we know history in Louisville is what it is. We have a history of racial oppression. We know from what's happened with Breonna Taylor that it's recent history, it's recent past, but it stretches back for a long way. And when we look at metrics like health outcomes and all of that, we can see the insidious effects of structural racism. And the opportunity for us is to not only know about our past and learn about our past, but also create a different future. And I think that's why the cooperative uh, grocery is such an exciting opportunity. The opportunity is for us to create other cooperatives. There are some other cooperatives that people are familiar with. So when you think of a credit union versus a bank, that's the, the best example that most people know of when they talk about a cooperative. There are rural electric cooperatives. There are other types of um, farmer cooperatives out there. So the opportunity is to hear more about our history find some resources so that you can research what has been done in the past, but use that information in a way that helps build a brighter future for people in Louisville who really have been deprived of economic, uh, the economic outcomes they deserve. We don't really know that Louisville is the fourth most segregated city of the United States. We can say that, we can roll those words off our tongue, but if you drive west of 9th Street in Louisville and drive around in different neighborhoods like Parkland or Portland, or Shawnee, or Chickasaw, or Russell, you can see what that structural racism actually looks like. You can see the effects of decades of redlining. You can see uh, what happens in neighborhoods when there is lack of economic opportunity. People find economic opportunity through dealing in illegal things. Um, <laughs> and it just creates, it's, it's not just a theoretical issue, it's a very practical issue. When we want to solve problems like gun violence in Louisville, which everybody is horrified by the number of deaths we've had in our community, that is a direct result of the lack of economic opportunity in our community. So there, you can police your way out of the problem, as many communities have tried to do, and we've all seen how that goes. <laughs> so this is a, an opportunity for us to talk about the kind of police department we want to have the kind of economic we opportunity we want to have. And I think Black History Month is a appropriate time to talk about who's running for mayor. So we can talk about that too. So people can learn more about the cooperative and the grocery at uh, louisvillecommunitygrocery.com, right? Uh, is there information about this event you were talking about? There is. Um, it's There's a Facebook event. You can go to the Sowers of Justice Network.org page. You can go to our Facebook page and see the event. It's at 12 noon on February 18th. And again, Barbara Boyd from the Louisville 
Asala chapter, the Carter G. Woodson chapter will be there. I will be there because I'll be the moderator. Um, Casa Heron will be there. Lisa Markowitz will be there. And Tomas Edison will be there. So if you don't know what you don't know about cooperative economics and its importance in black history, that's going to be the primary content. And then we're going to have some conversation afterwards about how people can be more involved in making this a reality. So again, that's February 18th from 12 to 1. You can follow us on Facebook through Facebook Live. You can also sign up for a Zoom link and participate by Zoom. And there will be a video posted after the event as well. And that's a Thursday as part of the third Thursday forum that uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation and Sores of Justice are doing, right? That is correct. And I think the big opportunity is to think about it as a way, you know, we, we talk a lot about wanting to do things. Uh, we have stirred up a lot of energy through Louisvillians showing up for racial justice, through these Breonna Taylor um, protests and other things in our community, but there's no to-dos. A cooperative is a to-do. You can show up with your money, you can show up with your time, talent, energy, and resources, and you can be connected to people that really are gonna make a difference. Uh, we, We talk about food apartheid in Louisville, so when you think about what's important in Louisville and what some of these metrics are, There are people in Louisville who don't have enough fresh, safe, healthy food in their neighborhood, in part because they can't afford it, in part because they don't have a vehicle to get to it, but also really in part because they they don't have the economic advantage of simply buying food. And this is one of those uh, big problems in Louisville. It's hard to have an educated population when a child's development from age zero to six depends on them getting adequate nutrition. It's hard for a child to do well in school and make a way for themselves in the world when they have not physically had the developmental resources they need to to be the best human being they can be. So whether you think about it from a food justice issue or just from a practical issue, it's one of those things that can make a huge difference in health outcomes. Go ahead, Lonnie. I just wanted to add this, and it's not just racial justice. Right. It's economically practical Mm -hmm. because here you've got federal programs like WIC and SNAP hundreds of millions of dollars into the Kentucky economy. Mm. Okay. That people use to go to buy groceries. If you go to Kroger's or any other big chain, when you spend those dollars, those dollars leave Louisville. They go to the headquarter town of wherever the supermarket's uh, based out of. They go to the bank that the the, the uh, uh, supermarket uses that's out of town. So the local economy doesn't capture that federal money that's coming in. And one of the things you can do with a good co-op, if it relies in any way on federal funds, a locally owned co-op can capture some of that money and return it to the ecosystem, the uh, financial ecosystem of the community. And that circulates through not just black businesses, but but white businesses too. And it, it, it actually raises the tax base, right? Because a cooperative, a, a, a cooperative that buys food from a local farmer a black farmer, you know, that black farmer 
It's income rises. That's taxable income. Yeah. It, it's paid into the local tax base. So it's, it's good. It's a good deal for everybody. It's not like, you know, you're helping this group and it's going to hurt me. No, it's going to help you too. Cause it's going to keep a lot of that money right here. Yeah. The other thing is that cooperatives build equity in the community in some other ways. Right. It builds leadership. Uh, people don't know what they don't know, but to run a co-op, there's a lot that you learn. There's a lot, you know, so it unleashes a lot of kinetic energy in the community. When we uh, partner with black entrepreneurs, whether it's a food entrepreneur at chef space, or if it's a black owned business, or it's a farmer, uh, you can pay a premium for those, but you can also just highlight those. Uh, what helps most entrepreneurs is having a steady customer base. So mm -hmm. when we feature a business or say we're going to have this product or this feature, then people can say, I don't know what I need to buy, but I want to I want to investigate buying this because we know that it's creating economic vibrancy in West Louisville, that it's a black owned business mm -hmm. or a black owned product, uh, that sort of thing. And cooperatives in general, in the macro sense, if you think of it in those terms too, you know, uh, we've got a small business administration. There is absolutely no reason that we can't have a cooperative business administration yeah, yeah. It's set up to, to give right. aid to uh, startups, co-ops. Yeah, We've got a, a whole class of businesses, different classes. We've got a class called corporation. We've got a mm -hmm. class called LLC. We've got a class called partnership. There's no reason we can't have a business classification codified in law that says this is a cooperative business designation. Mm. Just like you would say LLC or corporation or incorporated, it would be whatever you would have for a co-op. There is actually an economic class. I mean, there is some regulations for a cooperative. The opportunity is to think about something that looks like a need or a problem that is especially hard in a, a neighborhood that doesn't have the income it needs to just outright right. buy those services. So think about elder care. Yeah. Kentucky and Louisville in particular, we are leading the age curve. So there are lots of families with an older person in the home. Uh, a nursing home can cost four or $5,000 a month. An wow. assisted living uh, facility can cost two or $3,000 a month. So what does it look like when we create the opportunity for people to come together to provide elder care services, child care services, food delivery services, all of these things that people pay a lot of money for. If there's a vehicle deficit, you know, there's a transportation problem, there's a banking problem, there's an education problem in West Louisville. So how do we take what looks like a deficit and build on the strength? Because we have a lot of assets in West Louisville, and I think that's the promising thing about our work as the grocery. We've identified the assets and the people in West Louisville. We're just really connecting a lot of those dots together and helping them unleash that potential in a different way. So that's really the job of the Louisville area cooperative economics folks. So that's the not-for-profit that's launching the grocery. 
We're here on Truth to Power, here on Forward Radio with me, Justin Mogg, Lonnie Griesbaum from Backtracks, and Doug Lowry from uh, Sowers of Justice Network, a proud Forward Radio community partner, putting on this great event coming up that we want you to know about on Third Thursday Forum on Collective Courage on Thursday, February 18th. Again, it's going to be at noon online, and you can find the link to join, and uh, you can watch live on Facebook, or you can register in advance for the Zoom. It's at facebook.com slash S-O-J-N-L-O-U. And, uh, you know, Lonnie, I know you're familiar with this uh, amazing development in Cleveland called the Evergreen Cooperatives. Right. And, and, and it's a model that I think we really need to get serious about adopting right here in Louisville. Because what the story in Cleveland is that back in 2008, a working group of what we call anchor institutions in the city, including the Cleveland Foundation, the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, Case Western Reserve, and the municipal government, um, they, they came together around this idea of forming a cooperative initiative to create uh, living wage jobs in six target low-income neighborhoods in the city uh, known as the Greater University Circle. So just like here in Louisville around U of L, we have low-income communities and people needing jobs right around the university. And so they sat down and thought, okay, well, as these anchor institutions, what are the main things we're purchasing? And could we, instead of purchasing them from just whatever lowest common denominator bidder, could we think about... uh, actually investing in our community and investing in the creation of cooperatives to supply those needs that we know we're always going to have. So for example, what does a, what does a hospital need a lot of laundry, laundry, right? (laughs) Think about all those bed sheets and everything else, they scrubs, everything else they got to launder. This is a constant need right here in Louisville. I cannot imagine the tonnage of laundry that our, 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 you know, downtown hospital district is producing. And instead of just, you know, putting that out to, Oh, I don't know, whatever corporate giant that does that service, they helped incubate a cooperative laundry that is part of a larger ecosystem. The other thing they knew they need, we need food, right? (laughs) Think of all the meals that universities and hospitals serve. Uh, And then they also realized, you know, we're always going to have a need for power. And instead of making people sick by buying fossil fuel power, (laughs) why don't we start a solar cooperative to, to start making energy right here from the sun in Cleveland? Now, if they can do it in a place like Cleveland, we can do it in a place like Louisville. You know, we have some incredible industrial base here. We have lots of creative thinkers and and it's time for us to get serious about this and, and, and think of our anchor institutions here in Louisville, our hospitals, our universities, our Metro government coming together to really foster cooperative development, right? And Justin, what you're talking about there, uh, there's a guy named uh, Gar Alperovitz. He's from the University of Maryland, and he was heavily involved in this Cleveland project. He's, you can see any number of his great talks on YouTube if you uh, Google it. But there again, in this situation, there's all this, huge amount of federal money coming into the Cleveland clinic and they're finding a way to capture that and return it to the local uh, economy, particularly that economy downtown and in poor neighborhoods. 
And you know, Cleveland, a, a typical Rust Belt city yeah. that's taken hit after hit after hit economically for decades now, not just in the last 10 years. And what's really interesting there, and in other places these cooperatives have taken uh, hold, is even Republicans are in favor of it <laughs> because it, it <laughs> solves problems that they don't want to deal with. Yeah. They don't want to go deal. They don't want to go invest money in in downtown Cleveland yeah. in that part of town. They don't want to invest money there. It's a headache. They have of it. So they see these co-ops starting up, and they're going, "Yeah, they're doing. That's great." You know, less 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 people on welfare. You know, yeah. that's the way they look at it. I mean, it's kind of a self-serving yeah. kind of way of I thinking. There are but. lots of different economic models out there. Up the road from us in Cincinnati. Oh yeah, uh, talk about that. Peter Block and others have been working around this idea of economics of compassion. You know, we call ourselves a compassionate city, but it doesn't seem to have anything to do with economics. It has a, a lot to do with. Uh, an intellectual idea of compassion and platitudes platitudes in in, in maybe a not so practical way but our local business association has done some work with their association they actually came to talk to us maybe two years ago so there's Mm. some opportunity for us to think about building an economics in louisville that works for everybody and that's the that's the promise of a cooperative there's more than one way to go about it Um, many times people have a stranglehold over the politics and the power of money. Mm. And cooperatives are an extremely democratic way to resource a project. They're, I'm all for using the government's money, but sometimes that comes with some strings that you can't live with or some people that you don't want to live with. Um, I think black people in particular have every right to be suspect of our current economic situation. And I think co- cooperative allows people the freedom to, to lead. We have a lot of people who want to tell people what to do. And what's great about a cooperative is that it lets people uh, unleash that latent uh, leadership potential and build some leadership assets in the community because that's sometimes what it takes to build economic vibrancy. Just one or two other little quick comments on the co-ops because I love the subject. Mondragon. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with the Mondragon in, in Spain? Spain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100,000 people. Now, that's a series of co-ops. Yeah. It's been in existence since the 50s, 1950s. And it's it was set up for the same reason. There were no way these people were going to survive any other way. And so these three priests put this thing together <laughs> just to help feed the local people. And it's grown into this. Wow. A cooperative conglomerate. They have their own bank, their own university, their own tech divisions. Uh, They each operate uh, autonomously, but they're all connected to each other. They help each other out. It's an amazing story. You can, you can Google that. There's plenty on that too. The other thing is I noticed that the labor party in Britain said that if they ever take power again, which is, debatable but if they do (laughs) the first thing they're going to do is enact a law that says if you own a company that has over a thousand employees i think it was a thousand 
and you decide you want to close the plant down and move out of the country, or you decide you want to just go out of business, that before you can sell that company to anybody else, you have to give the right of first refusal to the employee. Oh, yeah. and if they want to do it and if they can meet certain requirements, then the government will give them a loan to help them buy the, the factory and get it off the ground and get it going. Wow. Now, you know, here's the thing. Capitalism didn't like all at once one day, kick, <laughs> kick feudalism out of the way yeah. and say, okay, we're here. It didn't work like that. Capitalism slowly, slowly nudged feudalism out the door. And it's like here. It isn't like overnight the, the workers are all going to own all the factories. That's just not going to happen. We probably wouldn't even want that to happen. It would be <laughs> extremely disruptive. It would cause all kinds of unintended consequences. Sure. But if cooperatives can slowly edge out capitalist forms of enterprise, and it's democracy, you're giving people a choice. Do I want to buy from a worker-owned co-op? that that my family works in <laughs> or you know do i want to buy my products from them or do i want to buy it from a corporate entity you have a choice yeah. you're not forced but it's your choice that's real democracy so to me the the plus side of this thing as you look forward like i say it's going to be a process it's not going to just happen overnight but if you look forward it could it could you know, generations from now, they could say, well, how did they ever do this without co-ops? Mm. How, how did we ever do this? You know, <laughs> and even government services can be provided by a co-op. So the city, my understanding is the city puts out a contract every couple of years to write parking tickets. Yeah. What would it look like if a not-for-profit or a co-op was given the first right of refusal for anything like that that's a city service? Right. It's towing vehicles writing parking tickets, whatever, because my sense is that would be a much more uh, community-friendly enterprise to begin with, number one. And number two, it would really provide some economic opportunity. I think one of the contracts that I remember was maybe in 2012, it was like an $11 million contract, um, and it went to somebody in Owensboro. Well, largely, <laughs> I'm not nothing against Owensboro, but couldn't a not-for-profit organization use those yeah. resources? So if we're looking at city contracts, let's do them in a way that actually creates economic vibrancy for our citizens. So whether it's a federal program or a state program or a local program, if our money's involved, how can we put that in the hands of people that can use it to create a true common good uh, when it's public money that's being used to fund it? What about bridge tolls? Ah. That'd be a nice contract for a nonprofit. Yeah. I'm, I think we need a cooperative fairy. There you go. <laughs> are you, oh, yeah. you going to support the plutocrats and take the bridge? Or are you going to support democratic population? The only reason they built the bridges in the first place was so that the Hoosiers could swim home from work in the shade. <laughs> Is that it? I was wondering. <laughs> It's hot out on that river. <laughs> Everybody, you need a little levity. That's my whole thing. <laughs> right.
we need a little levity in this life, especially these days. Yeah, things seem to be looking up, though. I mean, of course, uh, you know, we need more than just the right person in in the office of president. But these these first couple weeks of the Biden presidency have been really hopeful from my perspective. And and yeah, we can't solve everything with these uh, executive orders, but the ones that he's prioritized. Uh, I, th- I think are really encouraging. I mean, yes, obviously there's a lot to be un- undone in terms of the horrors that, that Trump rained down around immigration and just fi- addressing COVID finally, right? But things like uh, things, things like really taking a leadership role again in, in climate, global climate yeah. change and, yeah. and canceling the Keystone XL pipeline yeah. and rejoining the Paris well, Accord, I mean, these are huge. Yeah. Well, you see what he's doing with this... Uh, canceling student debt don't you oh yeah Talk you, about see, that. you see what you see what's going on there now a lot of people are mad at him today because oh well you know you could cancel that up to fifty thousand. you could do that by executive order today which he could but here's what he's doing he's trying to restore separation of powers hmm. he's saying i would rather congress brought me a bill that i can sign that says we're going to cancel student debt hmm. because then it would be permanent. It wouldn't be something a, a new, another president could go back on. Right, right, right. Uh, and, and he, he's kind of saying Congress do your job. And, and really, if you look, and this goes back a lot further than just Trump, Congress has been pretty recalcitrant in the last decade or so right, about getting anything done really. And he's saying Congress do your job. Yeah. But if you don't, the signal is I'm probably going to make an executive order. <laughs> so, so I respect him for that. He's trying to put, he's got enough technocrats back in there now. That's his deal. He's trying to get people in there, I believe, that regardless of whether they're strong progressives or they're moderate, they're at least people that are competent. <laughs> know how to get things done that know how the wheels turn and how they work, you know, compared to what we had, I mean, aside, Herman Cain, I mean, aside from his crazy ideas, uh, he simply, he didn't know how to do anything. He, <laughs> he, he, he was incompetent. Yeah. So I think what Jeff Biden's trying to do is he's trying to get the government back to where it's functioning as a government. Yep. Yep. And I'll give him credit. I'm, you know, look, yeah, Congress, you do need, you do, you do need to pick up the ball and do what you're, you can't just expect the president to solve all this with executive orders, do your job. And if they, and then if, you know, if they don't, he's saying, yeah, I'm pretty much going to do that. But it was fun to watch the jaws of the press drop during those that first <laughs> press conference when suddenly uh, they weren't being uh, insulted and, and belittled. <laughs> it was actually an adult conversation. <laughs> yeah, and every day. I mean, yeah, he, they're having these every day. Now. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, he's put a pause on student loan payments uh, through September 30th, and and yeah, I, I like what you're saying there. He's really signaling to to Congress to take action and make that permanent. I mean, that's such a burden on so many of our young people, uh, and it, and it, some of them never get out of it their whole lives. Some old people and old people too, right? right? They are old people because they never got out of it when they were young people. Yeah, that's definitely true. And Lloyd Austin, um, you know, the defense secretary rooting out all of these uh, right of right Nazi-esque folks, right wing radicals. Oh, yeah. That's a big deal. Um, and I think there are some there, there's a lot of issues to fix. But that's one I think that mo- many of us know is a problem. I'm just not sure what people know how to do something about that. You know, what 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 is the tack to take? Because we know whether it's. Um, a small city police department like Audubon Park, or it's yeah. uh, the National Guard, or whether it's uh, some branch of the military, you know, the Coast Guard, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, whatever. It's very hard to identify who those people are and have a plan. And then how do you decide who's in and who's out and why? Um, it's a strange sort of vetting, but I think it's, it's important that we've taken that step as a country. Uh, I think we all anxiously await the results of that. Um, I think, too, uh, you know, I don't want to get all on a Pollyanna thing either about uh, Joe Biden. Uh, but I just I think you got to give him a little bit of time. Sooner or later, he's going to run up against some issues that are really tough. I, I mean, there's going to be things I know that I'm not going to agree with. Yeah, well, uh, there, there are already <laughs> some issues that, regarding foreign policy oh, that yeah. I'm a little concerned about. Even though he did uh, say he's going to stop all the Yemen. Oh, stuff. the yeah, the war in Yemen. Yeah, that and that's that's a real positive. Huge. But you know, uh, when it comes time to handle things like Venezuela yeah. and <laughs> and this Myanmar situation, you know, do you sanction Myanmar or or what do you do and and you know, and those those kinds of things get really complicated. That's true. Because you're not just sanctioning people, the the government. You're right. sanctioning people. Right. And and I heard a great uh, podcast the other day, and I'm trying to remember who it was. But they were talking about that the situation in Myanmar is so complicated, and uh, you know, even uh, the democratic government that they overthrew. Had problems. Oh, yeah. There were some corruption issues, and they allowed a genocide to take place without doing a whole lot. And, and so, who do you who do you sanction? And they had a great idea. It's, look, you are uh, or, or with the situation in Russia. They had a great idea. Look, it's it's making sure you expose to the light of day things that are happening. Mm. In other words, expose the corruption. In, in this new government in Myanmar, the military expose the individuals in that army that are that are doing these things. Expose the oligarchs in Russia that are tied to Putin. Mm. Expose them. Uh, sanctions hurt the people. Yeah, but you can you can do a lot just by putting pressure on these individuals and making sure not a news day goes by that people don't know that hey, this is this guy's corrupt. This guy's doing this. And, and you, that puts pressure from all over the world on these guys. So I just hope Biden doesn't fall into that trap where you start throwing sanctions around. And 
and, and lead to a situation um, like with North Korea, where yeah, the the, right. the population is just in horrible poverty, uh, and and yet the situation remains unchanged. You know, the right. dictator's still in power and still you know a nuclear threat. Yeah, the sanctions that we put on Cuba mm. all these years, they've done absolutely nothing yeah. to soften the cuban government boy and at the end of the obama administration i had such hope for you know renormalizing relations with cuba and then trump came along and it all went out the window yeah yeah well we're nearing the end of our time together is there uh, anything else that, that was on y'all's minds uh, that we definitely don't want to let the hour go without touching on any anything in the national or international news or local news hey mayoral elections is a yeah. big thing if we're talking about black history month Think about two people already announcing that they're running in the next mayor election, Shamika Parrish-Wright um, and our current Metro Council president, and asking, you know, is it, are you going to be behind an activist mayor or are you going to be behind a sort of traditional mayor who used to be a policeman? It's kind of an interesting yeah. uh, conversation, but it's exciting to see two black people running for mayor and saying, I, yeah. I've got the chutzpah and the will and the desire to run for mayor. Um, you know, we have a new police chief, which uh, David James helped uh, bring to Louisville. And I think that's a conversation, you know, one of the big issues for us in Louisville really is talking about police ourselves, uh, not just because people are being murdered in the streets, but because we need a mayor and we need a police department that we can trust. And I would say that right now, given this recent uh, report about LMPD, no surprise, I don't know we needed a consulting firm to tell us this, but LMPD is a hot mess. The community (laughs) doesn't trust it. Uh, Government doesn't trust it. Officers don't trust their leadership. It's a mess. But we have the opportunity to reshape who leads that department uh, because they will serve the mayor. So, Well, that kind of falls in line with another story I saw today was the uh, chief recruiter for the Kentucky State Police. Turns out he was at the Capitol rally, somebody called it. I said, no, it wasn't a rally. It was an insurrection. (laughs) insurrection. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, those Bolsheviks had a rally and it kind (laughs) of got out of hand. Yeah, same thing happened in France. I mean, <laughs> With they the had a rally, and <laughs> next thing you know, that King's head was gone. I mean, yeah, rally. But anyway, I read that and I thought, well, yeah, you know, this guy's the hit chief recruiter, really, for the Kentucky State Police, and he's at this thing in D.C. on January 9th. Oh, yeah. What's that tell you? Yeah. I mean, it tells you, it tells me all I need to know. <laughs> well, the other thing is, is there a way forward? It's one thing to name and identify the problem. We can talk about the scale, the scope, and severity, which I think most of us are really good at that. But that's a hidden trap. Somebody has to say at some point, this is what we're going to do differently to get to a different place. We know that the promise of America is equality for all people. And I hope that we have a way forward, especially around race, but also on LGBTQ equality, um, hope for people who are foreign born and have a completely different religion. There are so many extra super Jesus-y white Christian nationalists that it's hard for people who 
come from a different world who are either an atheist or foreign born and practice a different religion to feel safe. And to me, that's the promise of America that we really need to be working on. How do we make this an America for everybody, not just for the white nationalist folks? Yeah. Well, what do you think about this new uh, police re review board? Do you think that's got any merit? I know a lot about the police review board and some of the makeup and how some of those decisions were made. So I think there's a lot of hope in that. Um, but like lots of boxes, there are just things that aren't going to fit in that box. Um, right. If they don't have Sabina power, and if there's not some weight behind making the recommendations that they need to make, um, really have some weight and some authority, it, it's just another way to brush off how power is used inappropriately in our community. Um, there is a Brianna's Law in the legislature right now that Attica Scott is sponsoring. So there's some statewide architecture behind some of this that, that I think will help us get where we need to go. Um, but the other thing is really thinking about stop and, and search. Um, you know, one of the big ways that we violate people's rights all, all over Jefferson County, but especially in West Louisville, it's not knocking on people's doors, it's stopping people in their personal vehicle. And there's story after story after story about how we stop people in Louisville, why we stop people. We still do racial profiling. We know that that's being done. We can tell it by um, analysis of the data. And we need to find a different way to police people in a way that, that does not violate their rights and treats people in our community the same, whether they're black or white. And obviously we're a long way from that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw where Ja'Cory Arthur's really pushing this deal where uh, no more uh, secret meetings and discussions between the FOP and LMPD. And I didn't know that was the case. And when I found out, my, my wife, she hit the fan. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean those negotiations are secret? Yeah, really. You know, the FOP's running LMPD, basically, because... Yeah. Go back and look at how our current police chief was selected. Why people like um, Sadiqa Reynolds and other people felt left out. That, of all things in our community, given what happened with Breonna Taylor, with this um, sex abuse scandal, mm. with all of the lack of transparency, with the tone deafness of our former police chief, that is one thing that our city could have and should have done. We should have had a community conversation, even if it was window dressing. It just feels like that would have been a very common sense move on our part. And we as community can have these conversations about the type of policing we want. We don't have to wait for government to tell us we can make those decisions ourselves. Well, unfortunately, we're all out of time because we were just starting to get into it. That was good. Um, I want to thank Doug Lowry from the Sowers of Justice Network and Lonnie Greasebrown from Backtracks for joining me, Justin Mogg, here on Truth to Power this week. Thank you, gentlemen. Great to be here. Thanks, Justin. All right. And we'll be back in your ears again in one week's time. Stay tuned. Lots of great stuff coming up here on Forward Radio.